Hello and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's episode is with Adam Nathanson. Adam grew up in New Jersey and in the 1980s began playing in hardcore punk bands around New York City. First with the bands Mr. Softy and Trauma, then with Life's Blood and the band Born Against. If you don't know who Born Against is, I'm not sure I can really explain the band well, but it was a punk band that at its core was very political and in how they operated a band that seemed to piss off everybody. Musically, they had a distinct sound in hardcore, and to me, a lot of that came from Adam's guitar playing, which would range from heavy power chords to these almost insane-sounding, appreciated chords that, when mixed with the heaviness going on behind it, sounded like nothing else I'd ever heard before. After Born Against, Adam went on to form an even more musically interesting band called The Young Pioneers. But without further introduction, here's Adam discussing his path in music the stories of these bands, and also the politics, from the political climates during some of the bands to the one we are living in now. I hope you enjoy our conversation. How did you get into, like, punk rock? The answer is, it's really lame. I was in eighth and ninth grade. I was on the, the town swim team. Oh, and then the high school swim team. Mm-hmm. And, um... For whatever reason, these guys, the the people who were on the swim team were not totally the regular jocks. So they they listened to a lot of stuff like uh, the Ramones, the Damned, stuff like that. And then I just I just took it further, and I realized that New York was where it was at. Like it's sort of like if you were like um, you found out about all that stuff and you lived the kind of far out in Chesterfield, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. be like, well, that's nice. I'll just keep listening to this stuff in Chesterfield and I won't go to Gray Street, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Or uh, if you're like outside of like DC, you wouldn't go to DC or something. (laughs) Um, Um, I'll just really be, I'll dig punk rock from Vienna or Springfield right here. (laughs) (laughs) So you were growing up in New Jersey? Yeah, I'm from Northern New Jersey. Um, and part of getting into punk rock was there, there was this really shitty, shitty, important place, um, just a few miles from my mom and dad's house called the show place. And, uh, everybody played there in the seventies and the eighties. And like, when I say everybody, we're talking about the Ramones, the Misfits, Slade, Slayer, like just, and then all of the little DIY shows too, like all of the little DIY stuff that like, you know, people are paying $500 for a seven inch for all of that shit too. Like it was, and it was a, you know, it was a shitty biker controlled go-go bar, but it was like a few miles from the house. And one week they'd have suicidal tendencies. Next week they'd have the Dickies and raw power. The next week they'd have mental abuse and the damned. So that was pretty easy. Um, transition. How, Except for uh, like how old are you? High school. I would say, all right. Um, when I was phys- in physical form at the shows, that didn't start till I was 16. Is that something that your parents were cool with or? I don't know why they let me do that. They weren't really strict on a lot of stuff, but uh, I don't think they weren't thrilled about it, but there was a lot, a lot of me and my friend Chucky, he's from this neighborhood where I'm standing right now, but he lives in Richmond and he's in a bunch of bands. And um, we just never stopped doing like 
hey, I'm sleeping over Chucky's. And and he would be like, hey, I'm sleeping over Adams. And then we'd like, uh, you know, go to um, New York and see a show that ended at 4 a.m. Oh, wow. I think a lot of you could just change the proper nouns and like everybody has a story like that, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, When did you actually start playing an instrument, though? Oh, I had a, I was like trying with like lessons and things that were really turning me off, even like in middle school. And I was just like, you know, but it was like I wasn't motivated. But then me and my friend from this neighborhood also where I am, my friend Charlie from high school had this band. It was just me on guitar and him on drums. And I guess we both sang and we would just when there would be a party, like somebody's parents weren't home, our band detour would play it was terrible but we we would just cover like the circle jerks or like songs on records that we had that were a guy some guys in new jersey in 1985 would do right and, and yeah. so like how how old were you when that started that's like 16 okay th- that, that's that like wasn't your... like real shows or anything right right but that was like your first band basically that was my first band where we we would say we have a band and um, we're gonna play a party and then people would say we saw your band yeah was it something that you seemed to enjoy yeah I thought it was a lot of fun I definitely wanted to keep doing it so I think I put a flyer on the cork board in some records S O M E I don't have you ever heard of that place. No, it's in New York City. It was. It was in New York City in the 80s. Right. And the guy who ran it, he it was kind of like he was our uncle, everybody in the scene. You could just hang out in there like the entire day, except for going down to a matinee show or getting your lunch or whatever. Hell yeah. And leave your backpack there. That was like, you know, the nerve center of our little scene. And uh, so I've just put a flyer up. The people who responded to it were... Anthony, who became the singer of Raw Deal, Killing Time. He had been the singer of Token Entry. And uh, Wrecking Machine, this guy, he was an agnostic front roadie. And, he, and, and so we had we had one band called Mr. Softy. That was when right. I was in like 11th, 12th grade. And the theory was, according to Wrecking Machine, was that we would be the hardest band in New York City but when people came to see us, we would really surprise them because our name was Mr. Softy. Right. <laughs> like after so we the were like cream. serious brain surgeons. <laughs> was that after the uh, the Mr. Softy uh, ice cream truck? Uh-huh. Right. And then at the same time, we had uh, John from Nausea. He was the bass player. Mm-hmm. He and I and this guy, Sergio, who was in, um, well, I guess maybe still is, in Quicksand, but this is before Quicksand. We had a peace punk band at the same time. It was called Trauma. So I was doing both of these bands, right? So now I'm in 12th grade, and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And all these other guys, they're about my age. Maybe a little, one, or, one or two of them might be a little bit older. but um, And I got arrested hopping the subway to come into the city. My dad flipped, right? And he, he grounded me. And I told the guys in Mr. Softy and the guys in Trauma, like different phone calls. I'm like, hey, guys, uh, sorry, I can't practice for a while. I'm grounded. And these guys are like, right. you know, one of them's roading for Agnostic Front. Another one's 
like living in a squat and he's a graffiti artist, you know, right. and he has like a um, chest piece of the amoebic head on him. Oh and my I'm God. like, guys, I got grounded. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that happens when you're a kid, when you're, you know, 16, like, you're going to get fucking grounded. So, Mr. Softy, was that more like, like, just kind of real, just heavy, and then the peace punk thing was more, was more like, political? Because I guess what I'm trying to go with this is, like, when did you realize that, like, because you, you kind of gravitated towards, like, political bands, it seems more, kind of over the stuff you've done. Um, was that something that happened early on, or...? The songs, it, we didn't have many songs, but like when we did Mr. Softy, and neither of these bands played shows while I was in them. But uh, okay, Mr. Softy, Anthony wrote the lyrics, and it was like about his growing up being a city kid or whatever. But mm-hmm. the some of some of the songs became life's blood songs because that happened almost well, like immediately after. That wasn't too too political. The other one was yeah it was like crucifix amoebic stuff like that but i already my favorite band of all time as far as that stuff that changed my life was mdc so i was already there with that kind of stuff you know like um becoming a vegetarian and all of that so neither of those bands played shows you know what um trauma played some shows after i got grounded and uh, it was like at this place up towards Midtown mm-hmm. uh, in Manhattan called Tin Pan Alley, which was pretty cool. I went to some shows there. It was slightly off the beaten path of like CBGBs and a few other places. How long were you grounded for? <laughs> Man, I would get grounded for all kinds of time, like like uh, you're grounded until you can get straight A's on your report card or something, you know, oh, which right, would, right. would or wouldn't happen. Right. Like some kind of impossible goal. So you said after um, Mr. Softy, you said some of the songs became Life's Blood. So like, how did you yeah. get start doing Life's Blood? Well, me and Neil were friends in high school. That was the bass player who, you know, he lived in Richmond too, but we both lived up here and went to that place, the show place. We just, we were friends from the get-go like going into new york city we did a fanzine together first before we did life's blood called oh, really? constructive rebellion yeah right like how, when you say fanzine like how many issues do you think you did oh there were two there were two issues okay. and each of them probably had like uh, at absolute max maybe a couple hundred of each but, but it was like a place to kind of build that creative process between y'all yeah i guess i mean you don't think of it that way Right. Right. But, right. Uh, the human beings on Earth that would be interested certainly didn't number more than a few hundred anyway. So <laughs> it was just like it was perfect. So then uh, Life's Blood, Neil and I put another flyer on the bulletin board in some records. And it said, like, you know, we like the bad brains and SSD and crucifix and negative approach. And uh, first we said we were looking for a drummer and we got this guy. John Crickson, uh, he, and we're, you know, we're still tight to this day. I live in his apartment in New York City. So he was our drummer. He came out from Bay Area. He was super into metal and then COC animosity and things like that. He lived on Governor's Island, which was like, uh, 
is right across from Manhattan, and it's a Coast Guard island, and families of the Coast Guard lived on the island in New York Harbor. So oh, wow. we would go over like in my, in my station wagon and get his drums over there. It was really cool. And then this guy, Jason, well, this, and this ties in with Sam. So there, was a, there were a whole bunch of people, not a whole bunch, maybe four or so people that were friends that moved down from Albany, New York, to go to school in downtown Manhattan, like NYU, the new school and stuff. And, and a couple of them were this guy, Jason, who was the uh, singer of Life's Blood. Mm-hmm. And then Sam was his pal. And this girl, Christina, who was uh, around for the whole thing. We already like them also because of their fanzine, right? So, like, Jason and Sam had a fanzine called The Plain Truths. We, we thought it was awesome. And everybody in New York City really dug the Albany scene. Like, it was a mutual affinity. So when those guys moved down, this guy, Jason, turned out to be, like, a really good singer. So that's the whole story of that. How long after you formed before you started playing shows? Oh, let's see. So we started our band in October 87, and we played our first show in February 88, and we booked a series of shows outside of New York City, like in northern New Jersey and southern Connecticut, so that the idea was by the time we pulled ourselves together and played New York, we'd be much better because like nobody cared what it was like when you did or didn't play New Jersey or Connecticut. Right. Or at right, least right. not, not the shows that we played. And, um, we played with the awesome legendary band mental abuse, which is like the hometown heroes of this part of the world where I'm standing right now, like Dover, New Jersey. Right. Yeah. If you look them up, mental abuse was a thing, but then the thing was, then we were ready, well, we thought we were ready to play in New York where like we knew a lot of people and everything. And, you know, in, in decent part due to me, like we still sucked. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like, I don't think the drumming or the singing or the bass playing ever sucked as consistently as the guitar playing. <laughs> but we, But it was still... Um, it was still fun. And that band, I think we only played like 22 shows and they were all between February and December of 1988. And then that was, then it was the end of story. Wow. I didn't realize it was that short. I'd always heard it was a short lived band, but yeah, that's pretty. Yeah. It didn't feel that short for those times. To be honest with you. Yeah. They're probably like packed with you doing bunches of stuff. But that and was, y'all that managed was to record during that? Yeah, we recorded where everybody recorded, um, even our demos and then our record. There was this place called Don Fury Studios mm-hmm. in Little Italy. We were just in awe of Don Fury for the fact that the main thing he had done at that point was Agnostic Front Victim and Pain album. Right, right. So, you know, like you're 18. And you're yeah. recording with like the same guy who did that, you know? Yeah, uh, sure. At the same time, though, I mean, he actually was just a regular guy. His kids were upstairs in his storefront apartment while he's trying to record the bands, you know? <laughs> oh wow! So it was like a little yeah. like home setup type recording thing. Uh-huh. I mean, it was like a commercial place, but not like a full blown studio. It was in the basement. Um, 
you know, on the street in New York City, some basement access to commercial properties or apartment buildings is like two heavy metal doors that open up out away from each other. And then you go down the stairs. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then downstairs, there was just one room and the the control booth was, they built a wall and put some plexiglass up, I guess, like anybody would like say, you know, in Richmond, 30 years ago, people were doing that, like in Scott's edition. And so, yeah, it was it was one room. It wasn't um, it wasn't a palace, but it wasn't like totally unprofessional. And furthermore, we wouldn't know if it was professional or not because we didn't know anything. Right. You know, how was that? So that was was that your first time in a recording studio? Yeah. Yeah. How did um, that feel? I just remember being excited like anybody else would be to do that. And uh, I remember the day that we recorded that most of the things that turned into a lifeblood record. I, I, I don't remember exactly any more than that about how I felt, except that a bird shit on Neil. But that's not that interesting. Like while we were outside, like waiting on mixing. Yeah, we, like we took a break and we were eating some pizza or something. Bird shit on him. It's amazing what we remember from these things. So, um, yeah, when you guys put that out. Was that put out after y'all split up, or no? It wasn't. We had a cool arrangement. Another person who is my friend to this day. So, actually, most, not every single one, I'm still in touch with. But a lot of the people I've mentioned, like you know, I'm still in touch with, and I feel like we could rely on each other for things. And um, so this guy Dave Stein, he's from Long Island, and he's part of the New York hardcore scene but also he went up to albany to go to college and he did a lot of stuff with the albany scene so we had the albany connection having the right. albany connection in new york hardcore in the mid 80s was like a legit thing that the bands had was like you had your albany connection and you played in albany it was a thing that was just part of all the bands so Dave was up there, him and this guy, Steve Reddy, who, like, I guess maybe started Equal Vision Records later on, a few years later. And Steve Reddy was the singer of this band, Wolfpack. So those two guys, they released the Lifeblood 7-inch. They released it on their record label from Albany called Combined Effort. And that was after yeah. y'all split up, that it was released? No, oh, I never answered that part. It, uh, we recorded it in June and it came out in September or maybe, maybe it came out in August. Cause I remember selling them in front of CBs like right after they came out. And I don't think that the singer Jason was back from summer break for college yet, but I was already like, you know, going around selling them. And then we were complete, well, especially me, but we were just total dicks about like even selling our record, like we wanted to like um, control the price down to an insane level, even like at retail stores. And we had like put a lot of importance on certain things. (laughs) What did you want to make sure it was sold for? Oh, well the record said on it, pay no more than $3 ever. Right. Right. And we were just used to do that back then. Yeah. And, and you know, we didn't make it up ourselves. All of the damn, like crass records um right. like the the records on crass and then um the conflict label blurg the subhumans label mm-hmm. um 
um, all of those records, they all said that on the front, right? Like, pay no more than 50p for this record. Right. Yeah, because I guess people would just jack up the prices or whatever. I think, yeah, it was just like an ethic that we, like, latched onto it and, and like, you know, perseverated on it. Right. <laughs> when y'all split up, like, how long before Born Against came to exist? That was pretty quick. So Sam was around, right? He was part of the, this Albany contingent that had come down. So he was part of the Life's Blood world mm-hmm. for that, you know, whatever it was, 10 months. Maybe within a month, started went back to like um, Giant Studios on 14th Street to do our hourly practice space. And like, um, at first, John from Nausea was playing the drums. It was me and Sam and Neil. And then it just kept going from there. And uh, John even wrote part of the music at very first, like um, that song Witness to a Rape, he wrote part of that. So it happened pretty quick. You know, all we wanted to do was do that. Like nobody really wanted to go to school. Nobody really wanted to work, you know. And so when y'all started playing, like did y'all try to play more shows immediately or did you wait a bit? And when you did start playing shows, were you trying to actually tour or... Like, how is that different than with what you had done with Life's Blood? We didn't play that soon. I think, oh, wait, yeah, we kind of did. So it was actually about this exact same thing, like four months. So we played on Sam's birthday of 1989, mm-hmm. April 29th, I think it was, 1989, on Avenue A at the Pyramid. It was an animal rights benefit with like nausea and absolution and stuff. And uh, uh, it was terrible. Like I, I had so many guitar problems. It was really bad. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's always, kind of that's a, always a wonderful thing. When there's like technical yeah. problems. Did you and notice then, a uh, different like, feeling than the band? Than Life's Blood? Like how did it feel? Uh, I mean, we were so into negativity. <laughs> especially by the end of life's blood right and born against was so full of negativity that part didn't feel that much different <laughs> right um we were like fuck everybody fuck everybody who doesn't like us fuck everybody who does like us mm-hmm. fuck our band fuck new york we just i don't know <laughs> that was the energy it seemed a lot more developed in sound than than life's blood like it had like by the time um, you guys were putting out records, like it seemed like you guys had really come up with your own sound, really. Like, did you see that? Did you kind of recognize that developing? No, I don't know. I never even to this moment, I never thought of that. But I, that's interesting that that's what you've observed or heard. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I might be it might be one of those things where like the reason you make music the way you make music is because. I mean, that's just what music sounds like to you, you know? I think maybe, like, every artist kind of does that. Like, it's, it's kind of hard for them to really see what their sound is because that's just the way sound sounds to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I think, um, well, maybe one of the things we were trying to do with Life's Blood, I mean, excuse me, with Born Against, uh, it wasn't successful, but it did head us, in another direction, which was we were super, super taken with the band Ignition from DC. Right. Um, they've kind of faded to the background a little bit, but at the time they were very important to us. And we would see them live and like wait for their records to come out and be really excited. And they were doing something different, but with a strong message. 
you know. And to mm-hmm. us, they were like the luminaries already from all the bands they had been in. We thought that from the time that the band start, we were going to be like Ignition. We weren't at all, but uh, that was one thing that we thought we were going to do. And it did send us in a slightly different direction from saying we were going to be like Negative Approach and the Bad Brain. You know? And so you were, you were trying to have like a more like outwardly like known message? Well, yeah, I thought that Ignition did have a strong message. But also, the, I was think, taught, thinking of like also how the music sounded. Oh, okay. Um, they had they were trying to do something just a little bit different from mm-hmm. what they had done in their other bands four years before that. So we we thought we were going to follow in their follow their lead. You know, I mean, a lot of Born Against stuff is pretty retro too. I mean, it, it is just aping like I don't know, like like the first song we recorded onto a record, The Good Father. It's mm-hmm. like um, Black Flag type stuff like the guitar parts are just like black flag and i guess if you're going to imitate somebody it might as well be somebody good but <laughs> it wasn't that part wasn't too innovative and it, but it was also like it was cool that like we were talking about like on that song good father the war in central america and um sam was volunteering she was spending a lot of time at this place called the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador and Guatemala. It was an important group in the 80s. It was, mm-hmm. The acronym was CISPES-G, like mm-hmm. CISPES-G, because those wars were raging and they were being done with our tax dollars. And people really thought there was going to be a draft and that American troops would be down there, you know? Like, if you listen to, like, that song, Help Save the Youth of America by Billy Bragg, because yeah, yeah. they're already shipping the body bags south of the Rio Grande. That's what that's about. Or like that song Managua by Naked Raygun on Throb Throb. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty boys onward to Managua. Like, you know, that was what, that was the feeling. So I thought it was cool that Sam was like writing about it and he was also spending his time working on it too. So that was something different about Born Against compared to Life's Blood. Although during Life's Blood, I was a very serious uh, animal rights activist and, and it's born against too somewhat. The animal rights movement in New York, like in the 80s um, into the early 90s, was really strong. We would do these things. That guy, Dave Stein, mm-hmm. that I just um, mentioned, who, you know, he was a New York guy and an Albany guy and he put out the Life's Blood record, blah, blah, blah. And he ended up like, doing like um, music representation for like all of the big New York bands uh, when we all became adults. But the point is there used to be this group in the eighties in like Pennsylvania and New York called trans species unlimited. They were uh, a cool, super cool grassroots animal rights group. And they had these activities that were called like something like confront the public or something. Right. And they were supposed to fan out in pairs around ritzy parts of midtown Manhattan and harass people wearing fur. Dave and I would go out and do this like on a Saturday and get into shoving matches with people and crowds would form. And, but we were like on fire, you know, we were going to like stop animal exploitation and harm. I mean, right. It was a big deal. And when they would do the the fur free Friday marches that were, they would always be on what's now Black Friday, right? So the ones in like 88, 89, 
the whole thing was full of like hardcore people, youth crew, squatters, peace punks. A lot of us were there. Like the whole scene was there, like the New York scene. And um, and I remember Wendell Williams spoke when we like arrived at um, Madison Square Park or something. Why do you think animal rights uh, clicked so hard with with the uh, hardcore scene around there? Uh, well, I definitely know what I think, which is that it started with the when the Cro-Mags got into the Krishna thing and became vegetarians, mm -hmm. and it was right around the, the time that they were absolutely at their their very best. There was that plus the squatter peace punk scene, which was out on the street in the downtown like East Village, Lower East Side, and um, the youth crew like when Youth of Today put out the song No More that's on We're Not In This Alone with that video. I don't know I don't know why it all happened with these people in this one place, but those were those were huge things. Like I remember I became a vegetarian and I worked delivering appliances, right? And I was trying to get one up the ramp. I'm in high school and I slipped, right? Like it was too heavy for me. And these guys were like, You fucking pansy vegetarian, what the fuck is wrong with you? And uh but for me, part of my strength was like, I was like, oh, yeah, well, I don't think you would say so-and-so is a pansy vegetarian. <laughs> right, right. You know? What was the thing personally that appealed to you um, in getting into being a vegetarian? I read the liner notes to um, Millions of Dead Children by MDC. I bought it at Bleaker Bob's in 10th mm -hmm. grade. I read it, and I never ate meat again. Like, when I was finished reading it, I never ate meat again. Like, the same oh, wow. That was it. And you're, and you're still a vegetarian until this day? Yeah, mostly vegan. Oh, wow. Did you know any vegetarians at the time? I, I just knew that Harley Flanagan and John Joseph were Krishnas and vegetarians. So that's the only thing I knew about vegetarians on the planet Earth at that time. Oh, my God. So no friends, nothing. Man, that's that's awesome. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is a very it, – it's so weird because there was a lot – like. You know, thinking back to different times and and punk and hardcore, it's interesting how there's like these times where there where where things kind of like really solidify and there's all this like aimed kind of effort and energy towards these uh, movements. But yeah, you, when you're talking about you know that was also I guess a, a time where where New York hardcore was kind of shifting from being like the fast hardcore over to kind of like being the slower hard like that was a right before that kind of shift too right yeah that's all around the same time did you see start to see i mean like when you think of born against was that a hardcore band in your mind or a punk band i don't know i never really tried to make any distinction i thought mm -hmm. that um when i first became exposed to the expression hardcore was the adjective describing the word punk Right, um, and at some point it became like a genre. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, because, right. I mean, that's the thing. Is like so, when you listen to like, something like that, it, it could go either way in my mind, you know? Yeah, I was in uh, Vinyl Conflict, and I was talking to them about the records, and they said, oh, on, on this side are the hardcore records, and on this side are the punk records. And I, was, I said, really? I've been in here so many times, and I never noticed that. And then I looked over, right, and I said, okay, so let me get this straight. Um, on the left-hand wall, which is the south wall 
um, the 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 records over there are are which ones are those? Are those the punk records or the hardcore records? I couldn't tell, right? And um, answer was, well, those are the punk records. And I was like, well, Battalion of Saints Second Coming is over there. And they're like, yeah, that's punk. And I was like, I, I okay, I guess. You know, like, <laughs> why don't you just alphabetize them? I don't know. So, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And I think that's like a generational thing, too, because I've seen, I know when I got into punk, like, the the classification of it was different. And then, like, I don't know, 10 years later, I think people classified it different. And, and on, on top of that, once that kind of like slower type of hardcore emerged, then that's kind of just always been labeled as that. But but talking about, you know, like bands like Black Flag or Minor Threat, you know, like depending on who you talk to, some people will tell you that's a hardcore band. Some people will tell you those are punk rock bands. Um, it's, it's a weird thing. I, I don't know. I was just wondering how you felt about it in your head um, being uh, in that time. I mean, the, the only operative thing in my head is, good right you know. yeah for sure so y'all played that first show as as uh born against um well let me ask you this where did the name come from because that's one of the coolest fucking names <laughs> like, oh and we stumbled it, it was already the band's name and we knew it um right so uh it's that's too bad it's not it wasn't very nice of us um the place we got it from was the poster lyric sheet of the compilation let them eat jelly beans on alternative tentacles um it says if you like the bands on this record you should check out these other bands and then it listed the names of all the other bands well by the time we were like looking for a name for born against that record had been out for like i don't know six or seven years and uh we saw the name born against and we this is pre-internet age. We were like, well, that band never did anything, so we're just going to take that name because it's a great name. Well, then the internet came along, and it turned out, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> that band actually did do plenty of stuff. Like, they recorded, they played lots of documented real shows. They were a punk band from, like, 1980 in L.A., and there were tons of people who knew about them. That oh, as my the God. Field. <laughs> That's the crazy thing about now is how it's really cool how you can find that stuff out in like a fucking second now or back then it, it would be you, you and your buddies might have like told like this kind of like half cocked rumor you had heard once that oh, might yeah. not even be true for like you know five years and that's like your whole <laughs> idea of whether or not yeah yeah this <laughs> it's like now you can just google it Right, but we used to really encourage that um, in Born Against because it was pretty boring the way that a lot of interviews went. Um, and back then, there was like lots of fancy interviews going on. Mm -hmm. And we decided that in interviews and when we went to different towns, we would just have wild stories, just like totally wild stories and um, right. just tell them in the interviews. And so we would tell stories about, uh, you know, we were going to come here last month, but two of the guys were waiting for bail on some attempted murder charges, and, you know, just anything like that. And people would say, are you joking? You know, we wouldn't, we would never say, yes, we're joking. Right. And we just wanted, I mean, we were dicks and we wanted to have fun. Mm -hmm. Although some, lots of times we made the atmosphere less fun though. So that's not really true.
was that the first band that you were actually um, like able to tour with? Yeah, we went out to California a million times. One time we went to Canada. One time we went to Europe. We did a 10-week tour of North America with Rorschach. That was, oh, wow. I don't know what we were thinking. Oh, my God. We had a mutiny on our hands because it was me and the singer of Rorschach that booked that awful. I mean, it's great in retrospect, but you wouldn't want to do it. When you say North America, what do you mean? We probably played 40 of the lower 48 states and a bunch of shows in two Canadian provinces between the end of May and the middle of August. (laughs) Wow. But it worked. You guys were able to actually like sustain yourself Uh during it and stuff. Well, you know, you eat like peanut butter and bananas, which I think is fine anyway. And um, you kind of have decided that you don't have any responsibilities otherwise. But, you know, we, we burned up the van and, and nobody, we didn't, we lost tons and tons of money and not many people came to see us. I mean, you could fill a medium sized room with the people who came to see us between the end of May and the middle of August. So that's the other thing I want to ask you about after born again split up, it almost seems like you guys got bigger than, than you were when you were together. I guess it's, uh, it's possible that's cool. I mean, I appreciate it. It's neat because then you go somewhere far away or nearby your home and um, people know of something you did. That's really cool. But I will say this. I still don't think – we would never get back together anyway. That's just not the deal. But if we – if if Born Against were, try to, like, were, were to try to, like, take the a barometer or measurement of, like – how popular we became after we broke up. I think it would be a really mediocre measurement. Like, like say we were like, oh, we want to play a show at this warehouse. Like, I mean, there'd be like 58 people there. I think what it is, is that the people who like it, they really fucking like it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they feel, it's, and it's cool. I like that myself, but like the people who really like it, they personally feel like well that must mean there's another five thousand i must represent like five thousand people just me myself you know (laughs) and they don't (laughs) that might be true but i think i think the thing that kind of happened was around the time that the rebel sound of shit and failure came out you know you had that influx of folks like i mean my generation that was getting into punk rock um like i got into it around like 93 and so it was right before Green Day split, like went big. But as soon as that kind of blew up, you had all these folks going into like independent record stores. And that record was impressed either at that time or shortly thereafter. And when you start going like, oh, here's here's the icing on this cake here, you know, like Green Day or something. Well, let, me, let me see what the actual cake's about. You know, there's a few bands you get kind of put into. And I know a lot of folks that got into um, – you know, bands like, you know, Econo Christ, Born Against, um, you know, kind of through that thing of like, you're trying to look like, okay, well, what's, what's not as poppy kind of diving into there. And then, you know, you start discovering like, I guess what would you kind of classify as more like hardcore bands or whatever. Yeah. That is a interesting. Well, I never had the perspective that you just shared. That's really interesting. It does make sense too. Um, yeah, I mean, that does make guys, sense because 
when you were talking about Green Day, it was funny because when we did that 10-week tour, right, mm-hmm. everywhere we went, the one with, that was across North America with Rorschach, every single place we went, we were one week ahead or behind two bands. That we were like the sandwich between the two bands. And the two bands were Fugazi and Green Day, right? So this is 91. So Green oh, wow. Day is already getting popular enough that when they played the same towns we played, they were getting 200. And Fugazi was just 91. They're already popular enough. They're getting 1,000 people everywhere they go. And so one Saturday, they'd have Fugazi. Then the next weekend, they'd have Born Against and Rorschach. And then the next weekend, they'd have Green Day, right? Or vice versa as the bookends. And um, what every kid who promoted every show said to us is, hey, man, I don't know what the hell happened. We had a thousand people here last week, you know, because Green Day played or Fugazi played. Green Day played. We had 200 people here last week. So I don't know why there's... 11 at yours, including the roadies and people selling merch. Um, And then they were filling the blank with Fugazi with a thousand. Mm -hmm. And then we'd be like, thanks for the details, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this all felt great after that. Jesus Christ. Especially when you hear that in 40 states for two and a half months. (laughs) Fuck that. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very... I don't know if you deserved it, but I mean, it's what you got, shit. Um, when you guys were booking tours like that, how were you doing it? Were you like, was uh, MRR's book your own fucking life out yet? Or no, how were you no, making that, the contacts for all that? Perseverance, right? So you never get off the phone with one person before you get some more numbers from them. Okay. Even if they say, sorry, I can't help you. And you just rack your brain or you mm. make cold calls to the record store or. Right. Um, you like a fanzine from that um, from that town, and you write to them, and then you get their phone number, or maybe their fan- phone number is in the fanzine. Just perseverance. So many hours on the phone after work every night. You know, how long do you think it took you to book the like, let's say like the ten week tour? Like, how long do you think it took you to book you book that? Months and uh, I mean, well over a thousand dollars in phone bills. Oh, yeah. shit, right. Yeah, because you actually had to fucking <laughs> make long-distance phone calls back then. God damn. Yeah. You didn't have dialers or anything? <laughs> there, that was a thing. If you had some credit, um, some calling card numbers or some dialers, you could do that stuff from from a phone. But even so, still did some of it from your house, and we ended up with right. way over $1,000 in so when you booked that, what month do you think, when do you think you started booking that tour? Like what month do you think you started booking that tour? Maybe March. Okay. I can say. Me and Charles. When you guys were out there on the road, like actually playing this, how did it feel? Um, like how did, how did touring like sit with you? Was it something that you enjoyed or was it something that you weren't really into? I enjoyed it. Well, I love traveling the country. So that part I enjoyed. I certainly enjoyed having enough coffee that you're, you're, everyone's asleep in the van and you're driving at sunrise and you've got your favorite tape on. That was the greatest, 
you know, oh, oh, yeah. better. And you're like in New Mexico or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, other times it was just so stupid, you know. Um, <laughs> like, why did you even unload the van or even leave your house? But there were so many great times. Like, San Diego was the funnest place. Friends for a lifetime from, you know, it's just... Oh man, it was so fun to go to San Diego and Berkeley and I don't know. Yeah, friends for life from there. And like, I can't believe I'm so, it's so cool that um, I still would put on the records by the band, those people that I met, their bands, and that I played with them. I would still put it on and say to my kids, they don't care, but I would say to them, or I do say to them, like, this is the, you know, this is the band we played with in winter of 92 and it was the best and I still love them. And they're like, okay, dad, why? I don't know why you're telling me. <laughs> yeah. They don't, but they don't fucking get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so being a political band out there, like, did you get into any shit when you would get to some of these cities? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I was thinking about that last night because at the dinner table, my mom and my brother were talking about Missouri, something whack that happened in Missouri, right? And so I was thinking about this time, Born Against went to play in Missouri in Springfield, which is right outside the Ozarks. It's like kind of near Branson in Southern Missouri. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got to the show, it was at a Grange Hall and uh, there was nobody there, right? And we were on time for once. So me, and Sam, I think, went inside the Grange Hall and started going up the stairs to look for people. And all these big skinheads came down the stairs. Like, we, first we just saw their boots, like, and then we saw the rest of their form, and then we saw their heads, right, coming down the stairs. And we're like, hey, dudes, where's the show? <laughs> and these guys, I was wearing a, a flight jacket myself, but it had, nausea had this um, image that um, they created it said smash racism and it had a fist smashing a swastika and the swastika is breaking into pieces. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. So I had it on the front of my flight jacket, like on my chest and the group of skinheads looked at us and the guy goes smash racism. I'm a racist. And he punched me in the nose. <laughs> so then we turned around and we ran to the van and people, like, you know, when you're traveling with a band, like, as soon as you um, stop, uh, people get out and they pee. Other people, like, start collecting the soda cans to, like, get them out of the van. And people are, like, in slow motion. They've just woken up. And we ran around the corner to the, the van. We're like, everybody jump in the van. we got to get the fuck out of here. These Nazi skinheads are chasing us all around the corner. And everybody's like, shut up, you know, because you always joke around like that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> of course. Um, it was just like a, some kind of stupid a movie. I mean, we did manage, and it was totally like a movie, like, like we finally slammed the door and peeled out, and then they were like, you know, almost touching the back door when we peeled out. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, there was tons of stuff like that. Like, I remember when, when we played in Miami, the skinheads there had gotten, they had heard that, Born Against burns a flag on stage. And this is right after the Gulf War. It was a really bad time in the USA. Like, 
there was very little resistance to the the first Gulf War, and um, the people who did resist were getting like beat up on the subway and everything. It was bad news. We were pretty outspoken about that stuff, but we never burned a flag on stage. But a bunch of skinheads came, and they were like, "Yo, when Born Against plays, and they try to burn a flag on stage, we're gonna beat the fuck out of them." And they were just waiting the whole show for us to burn the flag on stage, which wasn't part of our repertoire. <laughs> but, you know, we just got in some arguments. Um, yeah, there was a did lot y'all of... Did know like, they knew that? So, like, so when you guys got to that show, when did you learn that they're waiting for you to burn a flag on the stage? Like when we pulled up, and, like parked in front of the place and came out of the van onto the sidewalk and people were like, yo, well, there's a ton of skinheads here. And when you burn that flag on stage, like you always do... <laughs> They're going to beat the shit out of you. Holy shit. I mean, there are probably a hundred stories like that, but those are two. Why do you think there were so many, like, I don't know, like nowadays if I run into a skinhead, I mean, it's pretty rare, but if I do, it's probably sharp. Why were there so many, mm-hmm. like, fascist skinheads around back then? I don't know, because things were boring, maybe? <laughs> right. uh, maybe they, or they they hated everything as much as we did, and they they picked door number one instead of door number two. Right. Right. Uh, I don't know. When y'all ended up actually splitting up, what was the feeling of like why you wanted the uh, why the band came to an end? I think I was the person who put it to bed. And, uh, you know, I don't think everybody was really very happy with me for doing that. But I still think it was probably the right thing to do because... Mm-hmm. We didn't have an arrangement where we could get better as a band, you know, or it's still like living far apart from each other and electronics weren't a big part of the deal in 93. And the other thing was we didn't really like any music or rituals that were going on in the scene that we were a part of. We liked a lot of people, but not anything aesthetic about it. I also thought that we ourselves were doing this ritual where like, it it was a thing where it was like hilarious to see born against. Like, did you see born against? They were hilarious. That was the funniest thing I ever saw. And I was like, Oh, uh, yeah. When I was writing the guitar part of my bedroom, I definitely wasn't thinking it was hilarious, you know? <laughs> right. Wow. Cause if you listen to your records, hilarious doesn't really come across, but I guess it was, was it a live show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, it's and good I'm to have really a good live show. I'm way too serious for that. I mean, but thinking about it, the, my, my I, I never got to see y'all, but yeah, some of my friends that saw y'all were definitely like, yeah, they did say that. But yeah, listening to the music, you know, it's it's you would not think this is a hilarious band to see, uh, <laughs> like by any stretch of imagination, because very like the the lyrics are very serious, the music's very serious, like. You think it would just be some crazy ass fucking show? I think I can tell you. I mean, Sam and I would talk about it in the van endlessly, and we also lived together the whole time. Just we felt stupid, like we were playing a style of music and an aesthetic environment. It's time had passed many years before. We were totally anachronistic, and we didn't like the aesthetics and the style and rituals of anybody else in the scene. So it was like we just didn't like anything about it. And so sometimes the solution was to just be like ridiculous and sarcastic um, ah. on stage, especially Sam. It, then it would be like, okay, at the end of the show, people are like, 
high five. That's hilarious, you know. <laughs> right. And it's so like, like oh, in your head made our situation even worse. So like in your head, were you playing like some just really bad version of like hardcore you'd found in like '88 or something? I mean, we didn't. We were not identifying any hardcore from '88 as being good. We we, we were pl- we thought we were playing a bad version of hardcore from '83 or '4. Wow. I don't know if that's just splitting hairs, but like right, right, right. To my micro mind, it's not. <laughs> Damn, because it's weird to look at that band like genre wise as someone that like just as a kind of outside perspective, like as a fan of that music. It's weird because hearing what you thought it sounded like and kind of where you're aiming for and then what I took it as, like, it was Uh because I can definitely see what you're saying. Like, if you look at the guitar parts and stuff like it's like, yeah, but like, when you take the whole soup um, Uh and then seeing bands that kind of like came after that and totally were Mm -hmm. like so influenced by that mix. I don't know. It's really interesting. But wow. So... When y'all broke up, um, you had mentioned you had you had uh, y'all were living in different areas. When did y'all start living apart? Because I guess when y'all started, y'all were pretty much all in Manhattan. At that time, Javier wait no Javier wasn't in the band yet. Sam and Neil were in Manhattan, and I was always a Jersey guy at that time. The first couple drummers were also in Manhattan or Queens or whatever. Yeah. It was mostly like a New York thing at that time. So when did you, cause I know you ended up moving down to Richmond. When and why did you move down to Richmond? Well, it all plays into everything we just talked about, which is that we had burned our bridges with all of our friends in the New York Metro area. And they were over it with us and we, we were over it too. And we had had such a good time touring and playing in Richmond every time. And it was not an expensive place to live. And so since we were persona non grata in New York and Richmond was cheap and fun and friendly, that's why we, we came down. I mean, yeah, well, at the end we would play in, at ABC No Rio and there'd be like 40 people there, you know, mm-hmm. nobody, nobody, Nobody wanted to see us. And what I didn't mean burn bridges. We've been dicks for so such a long time. Oh, okay. I got you. Know? you. I mean, yeah. we just talked shit nonstop. <laughs> and a bunch of people we talked shit about. For, here's an example of it, where this interview started, right? Okay. Right. So that guy, Anthony, who was in Mr. Mr. Softy, he went on to do Raw Deal and Killing Time. Well, when I was in Born Against, we were talking all kinds of shit about Killing Time without me ever having talked to him about it. Meanwhile, I had been in a band with him when I was in high school. And and people, there were a bunch of people in New York who were like, what the fuck, man? What, why, why are you being like this? Like, you haven't even talked to me about any of this stuff. And you're like going public with like random petty stuff. And uh, that was Born Against M.O., Right. And we trained a bunch of other people to do that. So then the ABC No Real people started doing that on us, which it only oh, makes wow. sense. Right. Oh my God. So then they, they were they were like, yeah, fuck born against. They're a bunch of sellouts. And like, how could we be surprised? I mean, I had been doing that to people that I had been friends with. You know? Oh, wow. So you end up down here in Richmond. And did y'all play your last show in Richmond? 
Yeah, it was in July of 93 at the Hole in the Wall. No, it wasn't the Hole in the Wall at that time. It was the Nile Cafe. Right. Okay. And, and what was the mood of that? A uh, piece of shit. It definitely. <laughs> <laughs> grim. Grim. I will show you sometime. I have mm. the flyer that Sam made for it. Um, it's one inch by two inches and it folds over like 20 times and it's a booklet and it just is super, super grim. Like a tiny flip booklet is the flyer. Yeah. He just, actually that wasn't the flyer. It was something he walked around and gave to all 40 people who showed up. Oh my God. Just like a little explanation of what the fuck is happening here. Right. It's like oh this is our last show and here's like a picture of Lennon shooting himself in the head and here's a picture of an American flag and goodbye and stuff like that. So what did it feel like you know let's say the the day after Born Against is over like how did you feel you know as someone that makes music and you know as a person what were you thinking you're going to do like were you relieved like how how were you in that time? I think I was the one who was okay. I loved living in Richmond, um, and I was really interested in country music and like southern soul R and B and things. And you know, Richmond's like a fountain of that kind of stuff. And I definitely thought I, I don't know why anybody would keep a hardcore band together for more than a couple of years anyway. So I thought that that was fine, and I don't I don't know. I had lots of cool friends in Richmond. Richmond was fun to explore. You could live on a minimum wage job. My rent was ninety nine dollars a month. Oh wow! Um, yeah, rent was cheap. girlfriend <laughs> Alyssa, who's now my wife, was already my girlfriend, and uh, I, I didn't think it was such a bad thing. And then it was it was really right after that that Brooks and I were like, well. we'll let's do young pioneers so and what was the idea with that when i talked to marty he said that it was kind of like you kind of trying to almost do like a folk punk thing like in your head but like that didn't exist as a genre back then like the closest thing to like what might have become folk punk maybe would have been like billy bragg or something like that but even that it's not really anything close to what young pioneers was like where were you feeling like this music, like the stuff that you started writing for Young Pioneers? Where did that come from? Well, you know, at that moment, I was definitely influenced by, I would say, two of the like indie bands of that moment. Because that was like kind of a good moment for uh, 93 for the indie scene. Not that I was ever part of it or even knew anybody in it. But right. one was um, the first Palace Brothers album. That one, mm -hmm. There's No One What Will Save You. Do you know that one? No, I'm not familiar. It's what's his name? Will, whatever that guy is. Bonnie, Prince, Billy, that guy. Oh, oh, and, okay. Uh, yeah. So the first album and the first single by them, I was like, wow, I want to do stuff like this. And also that band, The Silver Jews, which was super lo-fi, at least at the beginning. I don't know what they sounded like after that. And there was another band that was on Merge called Butter Glory. They had a couple of 45s. And I thought that stuff was really great. And um, and I also wanted to do stuff like, um, I always loved the Minutemen and how they did it. Like, you know, you could see where the Minutemen had like some country and other stuff in there. 
For and sure. They were still doing like a, they were still doing like a razor sharp political song that was a minute long. Yeah, definitely. So th- yeah, those are some of the things I was thinking of. And I mean, so I guess like you were finding a, a type of music that you're actually stoked about again. Um, Cause you had mentioned that like in hardcore, like you just were not feeling anything from the contemporaries anymore. Yeah, I mean, I felt like it was all an anachronistic ritual, right? Like, it was just right. like, we, what was the difference between that and the Grateful Dead, right? Because the Grateful Dead, I don't, I'm, I wouldn't have liked them at any point, but their point of relevance was like the late 60s, early 70s. And then so for people to like them ad infinitum is, I don't, that's even weirder. And it's the same with hardcore, like, it's, it's, it's anachronistic. Like it's a time and a place. It's, it's a moment. I don't know. It's yeah. It's weird. It can, I definitely understand that. Cause it's it, at a certain point, it can almost feel like you're like you're fucking play acting. Right. This thing that doesn't really have relevance. Like to, it to especially doesn't have relevance. Go ahead. Or to current timers, you know, cause it's, it's like all those, like when those things develop, they end up, you know, their reactions to things and those reactions are strong and they sound the way they do because of the things around them. And then the farther you get out from that, that, that sound doesn't have that right. same bite. Urgency. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And I, I don't get it because I mean, I get what you're saying, but what I don't understand is why, like when Gulf War two happened, Right. Why weren't there a bunch of blazing hardcore bands saying "fuck the war, stop the war," which there weren't? I was looking for it. Uh, you can school me if I missed it, but I didn't catch that in 2003. There and, weren't as um, much. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it wasn't think, like but, a discharge erupted to to lead the "fuck the war" movement in punk. It was like, ah, well, you know. Well, of course I'm against it, but you know, what can you do? I will say that during that time, there were, you know, like, like bands like Against Me and stuff were coming up and they were very political, but on the whole, there wasn't. And I think what it might be is the actual dynamic of the politics during that time. You know, I remember in 2004 when Bush got reelected and like hearing that, it was like someone had just shot me in the head when I heard he got reelected because mm-hmm. with that first election, there was always that, Oh, it's the hanging chads. Like it was an accident, you know, it was like an accident. And like 2004 yeah. was like this sure. confirmation of like, no, we're just fucking stupid, dude. <laughs> like yeah. this is us. And I think those years were just punching fucking activists in the face, like repetitively. Whereas, you know, I, I, I wasn't politically aware. I was a fucking baby during certain parts of it. But during the Reagan years, it almost felt more similar to the Trump years and that it was so fucking insulting that you couldn't do anything but react to it. Whereas the Bush thing, it was like almost like an opiate. It was so bad, but it wasn't that it wasn't that crazy. Like it was too rational. And so the reaction was kind of just almost just malaise. Does that make sense? Well, I understand it intellectually, but I don't, um, 
I, I mean, I, it's still like, I feel like it's a black mark in, in my life and everyone else's that we didn't do anything. I remember like trying to oh, for sure. set up uh, something with Iraq veterans against the war with a yeah. student group from VCU. And they were like, yeah, whatever, you know, like just, you know, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe I'll call you back. <laughs> it was like, we should be out fucking shit up, let alone like setting up, you know, setting up a speaker. But it's like um, when uh, August 12th, 2017, Charlottesville, I was there with Adam Thompson, the Bail Roadie guy who's now the journalist. Right. And I, I can I can tell you from having been there in the middle of everything that if so, there were like a thousand Nazis. Right. And there were probably mm. counter protesters. We were outnumbered by them and they they were way more organized and we got our asses beat. But I don't even think there would have been a fight if we had surrounded the park. They had the high ground in that park where the monument was that was going to be taken down or has been taken down. But so they could see, they could look down every cross street from the park in 360 degrees. And what they could see is one hippie, one church lady, one black block person. The line was one person deep. And what if it had been, there's a thousand Nazis and they look out from the park and down every street of downtown Charlottesville near the mall, they see people are packed shoulder to shoulder going back three blocks. Would they have been like, yeah, let's fight. I don't think so. You're right. I mean, because, and I think if they had done that in 2020, they might've met that. But why didn't the, my point is why didn't the nation, the United States, the people of the United States, there's a shame. We have not discussed the shame that we should feel that that what I described isn't what happened. For that sure. Everybody was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going, you know, for sure. First I got to go to target. Then I got to FaceTime my friend. I don't think for I can sure. make it. I, you know, I think at that time, you know, and, and that's one of those things where over the years, like just the response to fascists, like, like that show you're talking about the last born again show. Um, when my generation got into punk, like there really weren't Nazi skinheads coming to shows here in Richmond. And the last I had heard of that really happening was at like the hole in the wall, um, maybe a year okay. or two before, you know, me and my friends started coming to shows. And so with that, like you'd run into some every once in a while. Some me and my friends would some run into some. You get in a fight or whatever, but it was never like a like what you're talking about out there in fucking um, Montana or wherever where those fucking skins are like just walking around. And so you kind of got used to just not having to fucking encounter that, you know. And I think when a lot of these folks started resurging, people didn't really understand. Like those generations hadn't really been used to like the kids that were actually out there direct fighting with an oppositional person, you know? Um, and so I, I yeah. think like the folks that kind of took to it easier, like the black block, like, you know, Antifa or whatever, like generally punk kids that might've been more experienced with it. But, um, you know, I think the thing, the difference between 2020 and 2017 
was in 2017, the the right had just started kind of, it was weird because what they've been doing for the past four or five, six years now is they're kind of using the same tactics that the left had used for like organizing. Like they've yeah. actually kind of learned how to fucking organize, which is scary as fuck because usually they've been horrible at it, you know? Um, right. It'd be like 17 Nazis. Okay. But now it's like, they got a thousand people, like they're using the internet, like, you know, and it's like, yeah, people yeah. will do that at some point. Sadly, having you witness that and the death of Heather Heyer and all that, and it just also just the fucking shock of like seeing Nazis walk through there basically un, unimpeded. I think it did awaken mm. something. I honestly think that is why people um, were showing up in so many mass numbers because after that, um, before 2020, I think maybe 2018, I knew a group from a flo- like these Florida flagging people or whatever the fuck came up to the Lee Monument, and a bunch yeah. of us went out there to fucking right, just hold numbers, you know. And it wasn't a violent thing; like they were not violent types. These people that were showing up, um, you know, they just were just there, be, you know, my heritage and all this bullshit. But um, you started seeing that. And I think a lot of it was in reaction to just not being cool with Charlottesville, you know, and realizing like, That's Oh good. shit. <laughs> yeah. Cause I also think like, I just really don't think people actually thought Nazis would actually show up like that, you know, cause even during the 2020 shit here, um, during a lot of the BLM marches, there were all these like rumors and stuff about, Proud Boys coming to town and they'd be marching in number right. and you think Gunk Charlottesville and it'd be scary and they never fucking did. Not when those big rumors right. but it was like a constant scare tactic, you know? Yeah, yeah. For sure. But um I can't remember how we got on that topic. But so to kind of jump back for a second, um when you started doing and kind of maybe to relate it, but when you started like when you started doing Young Pioneers like how important was it to you to cuz now you're actually writing lyrics, right? Yeah, but actually in both of the other bands I wrote um half the lyrics or so too. Okay. Okay. Um so how so like Rice Blood and Born Against. Cuz you you're saying that you weren't really relating to any of the kind of ritual and hardcore and, and punk, but obviously you're still relating to this idea of music as this vehicle for some kind of political statement. Um, so when you merge that stuff with the, like kind of, you know, pulling from like those indie influences, you still kept like that political view on the lyrics and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think life is a war. I remember, um, I think it was somebody like Kierkegaard or Nietzsche or somebody said life is a war. And the, the way I found that out was, my friend Brett Blue, who was in Born Against, he had the words "Life War" tattooed on his knuckles, and I said, "Man, where did you get that?" And he showed me the quote, which was in this book at the time, uh, was real popular. You probably saw it too that that corny book, Modern Primitives by Research. It was like uh-huh. had like all people with piercings and tattoos and stuff in it, and at right, the right. time it was a big deal. But anyway, the the part he there was like an essay in there and I quoted whoever it was, Nietzsche. And it said, life, life is a war. It's a life war. And then Brett put it on his knuckles. And ever since, I I mean, 
life life is a fucking war um i mean i know the the war is taking a different tone or details or whatever in my life than somebody who's waiting in a refugee camp to immigrate to somewhere safe but still life is a war for me it's like well how couldn't you be political yeah i mean that's i remember hearing that that first uh I don't know if y'all did it as a single or if it was just the first song I heard off that record, but that food stamp song from the Young Pioneers. And I was like, I remember it was a weird moment because like, you know, here's a bunch of me and my friends sitting around, you know, we love Born Against. And and then we're listening to this record and we're like, oh, OK, you know, but like it still had that. I don't know. It was still saying something. And it was, it was a little more like subtle. It was not remotely as like shock and, and whatever, but um it was it was really cool to see you kind of put that nuance onto it, like to put, you know, more structured music and that kind of thing and it not be this kind of like like to have the lyrics doing something and the music's doing something completely different, like in terms of like attitude and that kind of thing. It was really fucking cool. Um did you feel like that was something I mean was that was that fulfilling playing like that? Like playing that music? Yeah, I had fun playing the music of Young Pioneers. I wish, honestly, that the singing was better, but it's not, and it's done now. So, um, but as, that's really the only thing that I would even ever change about the Young Pioneers. Maybe I would have made the recordings a little grosser and shittier. Mm-hmm. The, I think some of the recordings aren't aggressive enough. Like, they could use a little bit of louder mastering and more distortion and chaos because I think that that would be better for us, people like us playing that kind of music. But when I thought we got pretty good, like uh, maybe like when we were doing that crime wave 10 inch and the first record, the seven inch of uh, for lookout on trial. Mm -hmm. And it was the second time we, we went to California. I thought we were, pretty good at that time and it was really it was really fun we were pretty tight yeah that doesn't answer think, your question well <laughs> no i mean like like compared to where you were feeling with born against where it was just like you were doing this thing that didn't make sense anymore like did, did that did young pioneers feel well like that, made that's sense a good you? point i'm glad i'm yeah, I'm glad you said that because um, playing, going right back into more or less the same scene and turning right back around and going back into the same ritual was once again unfulfilling and pretty like meaningless. It wasn't meaningless to um, meet more people and meet more friends for life and see the country again. All that was very meaningful and um, play music with my good friends for life but the the ritual was just as hollow if not a lot worse i mean we're that much further away that much more anachronistic from like what were we trying to do and there were less there were way less bands that i was interested in that we played with i mean we played with the mighty carp you know we did a little bit of a tour with them Mm-hmm. And we played with Out the Drive-In. Like, so there were certain bands we played that were like, or the makeup. But um, for the most part, it kind of was an exercise that sucked. Just sucked. <laughs> totally. The scene sucked. What there was of it, you know. It was just not not exciting. Did you guys ever really break up or? 
Oh yeah, that was a real clear cut deal too. Like it was, um, you know how at the beginning of this conversation we we're talking about Fox and then this Fox ran across the, the right woods here. And, um, so we played our last show at the Velvet Elvis in Seattle and it was a pretty good show it was with uh, Murder City Devils and, uh, it was February 1999, and I was like, I knew to myself, this this is it. Like, I'm so done. It was our last show on a West Coast tour. And then I, I had forgotten something. We had all packed up, and I needed to go back in and get the cables or something that I forgot. And they were on the stage. So I went over to the side door to the stage because the velvet elvis was like a proper venue you know like um had a stage had a spotlight had curtains and all this and i open i look out onto the stage i should you not the custodian is like standing in the spotlight sweeping oh wow and the venue's empty and i was you know life can be like that sometimes Oh my god! And I definitely knew that I was making the right decision. That's like a movie. Oh my god! <laughs> well, yeah, life is. If you were to make it up, people would just tell you to get out of here. You know? Yeah. Seriously. Oh my god! So after that, have you found anything musically that you've been really into? I mean, well, like, I mean, like in terms of you making music. Well, right, almost. Simultaneous with uh, Young Pioneers ending, our friend Brandy, we did a we did this thing Tear Gas Rock and we recorded it in 1999, and then mm-hmm. our friend Tracy didn't put it out. I mean, well, she did put it out. It didn't come out, um, and no one was interested in it until she put it out. Whatever that was, 2016. That was nice to have a copy of it. Um, and I like it. Wow. I like that release a lot. Um, it doesn't Wait, seem like she put it out else. 14 years later. Uh huh. Or more, uh-huh. maybe. Oh my God. 17 years later. Wow. Yeah. Um, which was really cool of her. And then we did uh, some shows. We played Richmond a couple of times at the Black Iris on Broad Street. Mm-hmm. And um, like playing with other bands that we knew or had some connection to. And we played in Philadelphia at a bike store and we played in Bushwick at a community place and a bar in Baltimore. And it was a little anticlimactic. Like it was nice. I, it was nice that we had several friends that showed up, but it was pretty anticlimactic. It's just like, damn, you know, Oh, and then I got kicked out of Mark Telfian's band. And that was only like two and a half years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever just like write music yourself? I have tons of music and lyrics and, you know, guitar parts, harmonica parts, et cetera, et cetera. But it just never gets committed to, it never gets that any further than that. So you've never like tried like just... uh like making a record of songs that you have on your own? Well, it sounds moronic, but I get so discouraged with um, technology that Mm -hmm. I always give up very quickly. 
<laughs> no, I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. I mean, even being someone that's kind of like uh, good with technology, like just having to pull shit together, like, I mean, it can kill the fucking mood, like almost immediately just having yeah. to pull shit out and that kind of thing. Um, and that, that is you know, the one good thing about a band is it kind of makes you commit to showing up and recording because other people are stopping their schedule. So you're like, well, at least I have to do it because, you know, he's coming. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The other thing that's changed a lot since the times before is that in the meantime, I got a college degree and I've been working in jobs where even though there's still a lot of physical work involved there, um, I end up staring at uh, electronics and computers so much that when I want to do things for myself, mm-hmm. including music, I I cannot bring myself to be like, oh, I've got to get the right software and jack for this laptop so I can put the guitar on first and then I'll do the vocals. I'm just like, I cannot, I can't fucking open a laptop after I just worked uh, 55 hours this week with, you know, a computer. I can't do it. So. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. I mean that that is a you know that's a real thing. I mean it's kind of the same thing that happens with folks that work in like record stores. They kind of start hating yeah. music, so <laughs> like or they just don't want to fucking hear it. You know they love it, but they're just like yeah, I can't fucking. Um, wow. Yeah. But you've managed to somehow also it sounds like you've stayed pretty active with activism over the over time. How have you seen? that shift kind of changed. Like what was your thought on, on particularly um, like the black lives matter uh, protests and stuff like that? Yeah, I was out, I was in Richmond. So, uh, so I had to come up to New York for a lot of reasons and I was working in New York, but then the pandemic hit and I was allowed to um, work remotely. So I was in town for the entire time. And uh, I was out in the street every night, starting like the very first night, the night before things went haywire, which I think was a Friday night. Um, and that night it was me and my daughter and my younger daughter, the three of us went out and it was like a snake march, you know, going all different places. I thought the vibe was great. I thought it was, it was really cool. And then I was at, I was out on my bike on Saturday night when things really hit the fan. You know, it was p- pretty cool. Like some things happen on Friday night too. Like we're marching and people are like wrecking, wrecking the bank of America on gray street and some things like mm-hmm. that. But then things went off the chain on Saturday night, you know, and I was riding my bike around and I would check with Marty. I, I, he wasn't down there. But I was riding my bike around downtown, checking out what was going on, the action and everything. And uh, every time I would pass Sadie Sounds, I would send a text to Marty like, hey, the store's still looking good, you know, because that's how crazy it was already getting. Were you down there that night, that Saturday night when, like, the U- the United Daughters of the Confederacy got torched? No, I wasn't. I was actually, um, I was dating some other time and their dad had just passed away. Um, oh gosh, I was actually kind of, <laughs> but I got a, I got actually got a call about it because, uh, I live right near there and my, um, my, uh, ex-partner was 
really concerned because my daughter was with me at the time and they're just like listening oh, to police scanners and just hearing this shit. They're like, things on fire. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's right. And, um, and the vibe was exciting, but it was also, you know, sometimes when things are that intense, it gets, there is another side to it too. Like, um, kids, 18 year old kids were, well, granted, let's so I'm a 50 year old guy with a crew cut and I had a mountain bike. And, and, and so there were 18 year old boys coming up to me like, you fucking cop, you know, oh my God. And, yeah. And, um, so then I kept updating Marty like with a text. Well, the store still looks good. And then well, the next time I came around the block, um, I heard an alarm ringing. Like the glass had been broken. The glass had been, and so it was. And um, the alarms going off in there. And one of the guys from that thrift store that's like either in the space or next to the space where Nick's deli used to be. Right. He was like getting a, a table to put up against the window. And I was trying to like make sure things were kosher too. People had knocked over a bunch of stuff in his store, but it wasn't wrecked. Mm. And, um, but everybody was out. There were no more people inside the store and it didn't look like anybody took anything. So I think what happened during that moment, I wasn't on the block was that, People got wild and smashed it out. And then other people said, what, you know, first of all, what are you doing? This is a small business. That guy's cool. Things like that. And then people just moved along. Right. Because you could tell like a surge went in and knocked over all the record bins. They were all knocked right. down, but nothing, nothing else happened in there. It was like people were in there for a second. Right. Um, so I just stayed. And, but the funny thing is knowing Marty. So, the guy uh, from the thrift store is there and I was there, like I just mentioned. And I called Marty that time. I was like, Oh, Marty, this time, you know, the store's fucked up. You got to come down here and deal with this. And Marty's such a fatalist and a pessimist. Sometimes he was like, ah, fuck it. Just let people go in. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and, I, and I said, wait a minute, Marty. We have friends who are contractors. What you're going to do is tell them to come down here with drywall screws and four by eights. We're going to get the place secure tonight. We're waiting here until like they get here. And he was like, ah, I guess so. <laughs> when I was watching all of that, like, you know, I, I know from just being at shows and stuff, there's a whole thing to like, you know, group behavior and crowd behavior. And it's crazy. Cause like, if you're out, you know, and you and your friends are pissed, you can end up doing some crazy shit that necessarily isn't about what you're about, you know, trying to do out there and that thing. And no one's really immune yeah. to that, especially when you're young, especially, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of like that thing of like, there's a lot of anger just, and anybody that's like 18 or 19 years old. Um, but the thing that really kind of impressed me about the whole BLM um, protest movement that summer was that, you know, it, it was really kind of a lot of kids. And usually when I'd seen stuff like that happening in Richmond, they would rely on kind of like these old 
activist tactics, right? Like there'd usually be mm-hmm. um, like when Occupy happened, there'd be people that had been, you know, at, you know, tons of protests and like, here's how you work things. And it seemed like a lot of the folks involved in those marches, they weren't using like traditional kind of activist tactics. And somehow also it seemed to work. And so it was kind of like, really refreshing to see. Like, I remember one night, like the, probably the coolest thing I've ever seen in Richmond. Um, I got woken up. Uh, I live on Cary street at like midnight. And I just hear this kind of like roar and it is a fucking parade of people going the wrong way <laughs> right. down Cary street. And I was just like, Oh, hell yeah. Right. Like, I've always also, wanted to see that. <laughs> of course, of course. And, you know, and there was a lot of good strategy going on and tactics. For example, all the times we were out in the street like that and going the wrong way down the major streets, there were cars in the front of the march and cars in the back of the march. And then there were yes. vice marshals on at every intersection because we were not going to have somebody get run over like Charlottesville. You know, right. and there were a lot of times people tried to use vehicles, um, even even those times. I remember on Cary Street in Carytown, like some guys were trying to pull out into the march and me and like some other people on bicycles were yelling at them like, you can't go this way. And they were sketchy dudes, you know, and um, yeah. that was cool. That was really cool. I agree. And it was great that it was young people and they just, you know, to, to liberate Monument Avenue, especially the Lee Monument. So every night for months we were, you know, and I would just go down there and there'd be, Oh, Hey, there's a brass marching band at at the monument. Oh, Hey, there's some guys playing trombones and electric guitars at the monument. It was, that's amazing. It was like science fiction, you know? Yeah. Because do you know, Sean O'Hearn, the guy from General Strike and Food Not Bomb. Yeah, 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 sure, sure, yeah. Okay. So, like, in the, probably, like, the late 90s, I remember, we were so pissed about um, how Martin Luther King Day was still part of Lee Jackson Day, right? It was right. Lee Jackson yeah. King Day. And um, we made handbills, and we were handing them out all around town, because the reenactors would go to the monuments on Lee Jackson King Day dressed up like Confederates and they would march around. And so we, this is like, you know, whatever, 1997 or something. And so we're handing out our handbills and um, it was a Saturday night. We went up Grace Street to club, whatever that is, between Broad and Grace. I think it was called Club Boss back then. Yeah, I think it was too. And um there were a lot of people waiting out in line to get in and a lot of them were young black people and we were handing out these leaflets and people were like, get away from me, dude. I don't want to touch that. Like what you, people are crazy. And I was like, so happy that it was right. not like that. Like I, there was, that was the reality had gone 180 degrees. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and I think that's, you know, yeah, something definitely, kind of ignited um you know i mean you know it's from the shootings of these you know unarmed people but something i mean but that's been happening for a long time i don't i don't know if it was a pandemic 
you know, and just people worrying about the state. I do. But I also think like people had been putting up with Trump since 2016 and the campaign. And it was also an outpouring of of dealing with Trump and letting the country know there was a lot of rage, you know? Yeah, because there's not much you can I mean, you can scream at your fucking TV, but like there's not much room to or, or whatever. I mean, you, you have all the room in the world, but it's not really effective against a president's policies. You know, like you you feel really fucking yeah. powerless. And um, we didn't feel powerless at that point. It was great. Yeah, you know, it, it and we amazing. weren't powerless. Like, you know, Monument Avenue is 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 empty of the the losers and uh, mission accomplished in that. Well, I don't want to say mission accomplished. But in one small respect, mission accomplished. I mean, I think it's pretty yeah. – like I, I, I talk to people that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, like older people, like family members, shit like this, who know what the fuck systemic racism is now directly because of that. Like these older white people that just couldn't even fucking conceptualize of it. Um Things like that, like the fact that we can actually like look out there and see Miami. The fact that the other day, um, you know, when Youngkin got elected, you know, he's like fucking, oh, we're we're getting rid of masks. First thing out of uh, the Richmond public school superintendent is like, yeah, we're not getting rid of masks. And then I think the next day he's like, no, I'll teach critical race theory. And the first thing out of the superintendent is like, actually, we're going to keep teaching that. You know, <laughs> like, like I think that's directly because there's there's like these politicians. I mean, because the superintendent at Richmond Public Schools is for sure a fucking politician, but he realizes that yeah. his constituent base is fucking, you know, informed about this and that it is an issue. And maybe he's actually even seen the importance of it. Um, you know, I think another part of it, though, that is isn't there yet, and it definitely wasn't there with uh, the the movement in 2020, is that it's not anti-capitalist. It's still consumer culture, consumerist. We're going to be the head on the pimple exploiting the rest of the world. So, like, you know, you can still march down the street and all your clothes made by slaves from Vietnam and Bangladesh that you ordered on Amazon. And I know that I'm being a total bummer, but uh, I I just it just bummed me out that people they just want to do one thing. I don't know. Like, mm. it, like as much as the movement in 2020 was for some people, they felt like they were really stepping out there I still felt like there wasn't as much of a change of your life as as we need to straighten things out and that we're still, you know, just sitting at the, the top of a mountain of exploitation. And it's like, gosh, we've got to have some kind of discussion about the consumer culture. Like people are people are going on and on about climate change and they're so worried about it, but there's never any discussion anywhere ever. I don't care if it's Naomi Klein. I don't care who it is. Nobody ever talks about consuming less yeah, right. because it would undermine. I mean, the way we live is like, it's like crack 24 hours a day. Like, Oh, it's insane. All the things we now. can get and all the things we can just order and they come to our door. 
it's yeah. I mean, we live in a like a monoculture now. Like everything's Amazon, Amazon, Amazon. Um, media outlets have you know converged, and you know I, I think it's one of those things where someone like Naomi Klein, she's an author. You know, like people like Noam Chomsky, who you know he doesn't have to sell anything. You know, I mean he does, but he doesn't yeah. have to. That's not his job. He's been talking about the same shit for fucking 30 years. He, I mean, sometimes the same sentences, yeah. you know, whatever. But, like, his thing, he doesn't need to make a career out of it so he can whatever. I mean, she, sadly, you know, she 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 seems to me, I mean, just in whatever. I mean, she's had some good ideas, but, you know, she's an yeah. author at the end of the day. And I think – but that's, that's that thing is, like, um, that I've always said is, like, you know, racism, I think one of the reasons it's always been used so much is because it does, it, it, it's like that last barricade before getting to the inequality problems inherent just in the class system and in capitalism, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's, I mean, race has been used to break every, like, you know, most of the strikes that occurred during the industrial age, um, all that. Right. And I think at a certain point, you know, it's like you're an activist. You've been basically, you know, knowing about these kind of things for a while. A lot of these folks, you know, they're just kind of getting onto the idea of like, you know, maybe they've known shit fucked up, but to actually be empowered. I don't know. Right. It'll be interesting to see where they go, like these younger folks in two or three years when they've felt that rage the way that anyone that really gets into activism has and then yeah, kind yeah. of seen it not move past a certain point, you know, and yeah. having that kind of feeling. But um, kind of wrapping up, I wanted to get your thoughts about, um, you know, like having been someone that's been so active in activism and actually like following issues and stuff, like, how have you managed to like still keep showing up and like still keep an eye on things? Cause I know a lot of folks that, you know, they, they hit a certain age or just whatever the fuck or a certain point of stress. And they're just like, all right, I don't, I can't fucking deal with this anymore. And it's not cause they don't care. It's just literally out of like fucking self perseverance. Like they just can't yeah. handle how angry they get by it or how defeated they feel. Like how have you managed to, keep moving through that and still, you know, keeping an eye on things and trying to be a part of it. Um, I like the excitement that's out there in the streets of the confrontation and, um, not knowing what might happen. And so I like to be out there on my bike or in the midst of things. I just like that. And, the same way some people like playing golf or something or going to the <laughs> beach. I, I like it. So, but I don't, you know, I don't like really like going to meetings or anything like that or, um, right. I can't try or try, <laughs> right. Or, or like, I don't, I don't like trying to be attentive to three speakers before the March starts or something like that. Um, right. That that burns me out, or I am already burnt out of all of that. But mm-hmm. I like the street part, and I want to be there, and I want to see it. You know, a lot of the time, 
even even stuff that I'm like I like I I mean not because I agree but I want to be there with like weird right wing stuff too for, you know because right I just like go I just like being around that kind of stuff and seeing what the hell is going on. Do you think that was also one of the reasons why you liked playing in the bands when you did? Oh yeah, I think so. I yeah, this is probably a better way of not alienating people that I had relationships with though when I was in bands <laughs> there was a cost and that concludes my interview with Adam Nathanson I'd like to thank Adam for taking the time to talk with me you can find more episodes like this one on podcast streaming services or at our website variousthingspodcast.com this has been Various Things thanks for listening <laughs>